Rocky Mountain High Colorado Rocky Mountain High This is Our American Stories, and John Denver's songs have become part of the cultural DNA of this country. His music was simple and honest. There was no edge, no auto-tunes, no flash. Today we challenge you to have a new and even greater appreciation of this man and his music, and we're celebrating his life, honoring his life. He died on this day in history, in 1997. On October 12, 1997, at Monterey Airport, just 100 miles south of San Francisco, one of the world's best-known and best-loved singers took off to test his new plane. The son of a famous Air Force pilot, John Denver had thousands of hours of flying experience. It was a simple flight on a cloudless day. He was 500 feet above the Pacific Ocean and 150 feet from the Monterey Bay shoreline when eyewitnesses heard a popping sound. A second or two later, they watched in horror as the plane plummeted into the sea. He was killed instantly. Aged only 53. John Denver was born in 1943 in Roswell, New Mexico, at the Air Force Base where his father was stationed. It was a far ways away from Denver, but then again, so was his name. Here's John. My real name is uh, Henry John Dutchendorf Jr., and... uh, my father was in the Air Force, and, and we moved around a great deal. And uh, there was one particular period in my life when uh, I was 13 years old, and we moved from Tucson, Arizona, to Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, I was there for one year, and then we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Here's John's brother, Ron. It was always hard because you were going into a new school, new people. John was a little bit more shy, and so it was harder for him. And the music, especially his guitar, became a way of making friends and being accepted. And I said, I like music, I play guitar, blah, blah, blah. And so they asked me to bring my guitar to class one day, which I did. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, people were saying hello to me in the halls. All of a sudden, people knew me as, another, as more than just another one of the Air Force brats that was coming through every year yeah. through Maxwell Air Force Base. John's father, Dutch Dutchendorf, joined the Air Force in the Second World War and soon became a top pilot. Here again is John's brother, Ron. He flew a number of planes. He uh, actually gave Lindbergh a test ride, and I think it was a B-25 when he was flying those bombers. And then he went on to fly the, uh, the plane that carried all the electronics when they dropped the first atomic bomb to test it. Dutch achieved fame flying a new bomber, the B-58 Hustler. In 1961, he broke six world airspeed records in one day. Six records set by Major Duchendorf and crew. Four of them previously held by the Soviets. For this sensitive son of a Cold War warrior, something had to give. At age 16, he took the family car and ran away out west to Los Angeles with a dream of becoming a folk singer. But it didn't work out. His dad jumped into a friend's jet to retrieve his wayward son. Dad flew out there, and they went to Disneyland and SeaWorld and did all these things and then came back, and to me, their relationship was like golden. 
Four years later, John tried again, dropping out of college and hitting L.A. just as the folk boom was at its height. He got a singing gig, and in no time the music execs could see where John's star was headed. But they foresaw complications with his name. One day there was this big heavy meeting. They sat down they said, listen, kid, Dutchendorf has got to go. Has got to go. <laughs> Randy says that they asked him to change his name. And John said, no, I will not give up my father's name. I'm proud to be a Dutchendorf. And Randy said, it won't fit on the marquee. You have to change it. They had a minor hit at the time called Denver written about this city. And the sheet music was on the wall behind the desk. And they said, you're John Denver. Now with his new name, John Denver set out to make it as a folk singer. The opening came when one of the big names on the folk circuit, the Chad Mitchell Trio, lost their lead singer. Hundreds of young vocalists auditioned for the spot, but John was the obvious choice. Here's Mike Koblick, one of the trio's singers. John was a fine musician, an excellent musician, a very fine 12-string guitar player. There, there was uh, an innocence, I think, in a way, that was believable um, and, uh, and true. The Mitchell Trio's trademark was political satire. John's innocence was on full display. He says, well, I don't know anything about politics. And we looked at him and said, John, it's politics. And he said, that's what I said. I don't know anything about that. The Mitchell Trio's main audience were university students. In the spring of 1966, they were at Gustavus Adolphus, a Lutheran college in St. Peter, Minnesota. In the audience was a sophomore student, Annie Martell. I was 20, and John was 23. Very young, but I thought he was very glamorous, very worldly. He was not at all, but I thought so. <laughs> the two were married in June 1967. John began writing songs and recorded some of them at his own expense, sending the album out as a Christmas present. Track three of the album was called Babe, I Hate to Go. Mitchell Trio producer Milt Oaken liked the tune, but not the title. I said, John, that's a terrible name and for a very beautiful song. He said, what would you call it? I said, leaving on a jet plane. He said, but that's the third line of the chorus. You never heard a song named after the third line of a chorus. I said, it's a good name, let's go with it. And he went with it. Here's that original John Denver recording. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. I hate to wake you up to say goodbye. Milt Oaken passed the song on to another one of his acts, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and it became their first number one hit. With the Vietnam War at its height, the song struck a deep nerve and became a favorite amongst the troops. This is Our American Stories. John Denver's story continues after these messages. There's so many times I let you down So many times I play Cause I'm leaving
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our This Day in History, a celebration of the life of John Denver and his music. And we return to Greg Hengler. To this very day, leaving on a jet plane strikes a nerve in life and in death. Here's Peter Yarrow from Peter, Paul, and Mary. I'm uh, on the board of directors of the first hospice in America, in Branford, Connecticut, and I sing for the patients. And there was one time that somebody asked me to sing it who I knew was not going to be with us long. And as I sang it, I realized how that lyric of goodbye was like a farewell of sorts uh, in, a, in a more profound and different way in, at the, in the moment where it says, Now, now the time has come to leave you One more time, let me kiss you Close your eyes I'll be on my way And we'll dream about the days to come When I won't have to leave alone About the times I won't have to say Kiss me and smile for me Tell me that you'll wait for me hold me like you'll never let me go I'm leaving on a jet plane don't know when I'll be back again oh babe I hate to go I hate to go In 1968, John decided to pursue a solo career, but his producer, Milt Oaken, struggled to get the record companies interested. So I struck out with John Hammond at Columbia, Wexler at Atlantic, and half a dozen others. And someone at RCA, Harry Jenkins, liked it. John Denver signed with RCA in 1969. His first records were in the classic singer-songwriter vein, but his early records refused to sell. A young talent agent by the name of Jerry Weintraub, who would become a top Hollywood producer, became John's manager. We all got on a rocket ship together, and it was big. It was really big. The song that launched the rocket ship was the classic sing-along song, now known all over the world, Take Me Home Country Roads. It was co-written by two of John's friends from the folk scene, Bill Danoff and Taffy Nivert. Bill and Taffy planned on finishing the song and then selling it to Johnny Cash. Then one evening, John Denver showed up to share songs with his two friends. Here's Taffy. I said, let's show him Country Roads. Bill says it's not finished. I says, well, I know, but you know. Let's just show him what we got. And he absolutely loved it. And in the singing of it, John took the lead 
Bill and I fell in with a harmony and it just sounded so good like that. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is older, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. Home Country Roads was a huge hit in the summer of 71, peaking at number two on the charts and selling more than three million copies. Then on March 3, 1977, Johnny Cash would get to sing it with John Denver on John's ABC television special, Thank God I'm a Country Boy. I hear her voice in the morning hour she calls me radio reminds me of my home far away Driving down the road I get a feeling That I should have been home yesterday Yesterday Country roads take me home To the place I belong West Virginia Mountain Mama, take me home, country roads, take me home, country roads, take me home, take me home, country roads. After the success of Country Roads, John and Annie moved permanently up to the Rocky Mountains and built their dream home in the old mining town turned ski resort of Aspen, Colorado. The year that I moved here, 1970, uh, I was 27 years old and coming to Colorado was, was like coming home for me. I don't know how to explain that except I just felt that this was my home. And in that first summer here, uh, I started really getting into uh, to camping again. And one of them was to a lake across the valley during a, a time in August when there's what is called the Perseid meteor shower. And uh, this is, in my mind, the most fantastic meteor shower of the year. Uh, you don't only see the little flashes of the light. Oh, oh, there was one. Did you see that? And sometimes people do and sometimes they don't. On this occasion, there were balls of fire that would go all the way across the sky smoking. You would swear that you could hear them. In any case, uh, I was camping with some friends at this lake and told them what to expect. And uh, I think everybody was pretty nonchalant about the evening. Everybody I've seen shooting stars, big deal. And so as the evening grew on, uh, we all went to our separate camping areas to kind of quiet down and lie there and look at the stars. I was pretty sure everybody had gone to sleep until all of a sudden one of those came smoking across the sky and everybody, oh wow, did you see that? So we were up all night watching the most glorious display that I've ever seen in these mountains of, uh, of, of meteorites. And uh, with that camping trip and with the feeling of, of coming home here to Colorado to a place I'd never been before, uh, I ended up riding Rocky Mountain High. Here's the hymn John wrote to the Rocky Mountains and his new life there. 
The song went on to become an anthem to the state of Colorado. He was born in the summer of his 27th year Coming home to a place he'd never been before He left yesterday behind him You might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountains, his life was far away On the road, hanging by a song All you had to do was be in Colorado somewhere when he would start singing Rocky Mountain High and I'd swear you could feel the whole state rocking. That song is more than just a pop song, it's now folklore. Of, uh, it's part of our American heritage. Country Roads and Rocky Mountain High were big hits, but John's next move cemented his stardom. Folk music in that day had been serious and earnest, but John's warmth and outgoing personality made him a natural for the small screen. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back, ain't much an old country boy like me can't hack. Thoroughly to ride, early in a sack, I thank God I'm a country boy. In 1973, Jerry launched The John Denver Show, the series established John's catchphrase, far out. It's far out. You guys have been so great. I thought that was far out. They made my whole day. <laughs> far out. <laughs> well, I got me a fine wife. I got me old fiddle. When the sun's coming up, I got cakes on a griddle. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank God I'm a country boy. He was fast becoming one of the biggest stars in American music. And his greatest hits album of 1973 sold over 10 million copies in the first six months alone. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, John Denver's story, here on Our American Story. I expected the Rocky Mountains to be a little rockier than this. I was thinking the same thing. That John Denver's full of it, man. And that's Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber, and we're celebrating John Denver's life on our This Day in History segment that we do with Hillsdale College. And by the way, I've just got to get back to that lyric from Rocky Mountain High. He was born in the summer of his 27th year, coming home to the place... He'd never been before. And I didn't hear that lyric until I just heard it now. And I know we've all had music in our lives, but we've heard the lyrics, and we didn't know what the heck we were listening to until we actually listened to it. And now back to John Denver's story. The Rocky Mountains were John's retreat. While at home in Aspen in 1974, he wrote his most famous song, a love letter to his wife, Annie. You fill up my sense 
night in a forest Like the mountains in springtime Like a walk in the rain John and I were in our kitchen and we had had an argument and we had had an argument and then we had sorted it out and he left to go skiing Come there was nobody on the mountain when I started out that day I skied down this very tough run all out of breath I skied right on to the lift I was riding up again sitting there catching my breath looking down at where I'd just been a few moments ago all this physical stuff going on when suddenly I was hypersensitive to how beautiful everything was. The sky was a blue you only see from mountaintops. Then I became aware of the other people skiing, the colors of their clothes, the birds singing, the sound of the lift, the sibilant sound of the skiers going down the mountain. All of these things filled up my senses. And when I said this to myself, unbidden images came one after the other. The night in the forest, a walk in the rain, the mountains in springtime, all of the pictures merged, and then what I was left with was Annie. In the ten minutes it took to reach the top of the mountain, the song was there. It's been wonderful for me because I've heard it in elevators. I've heard it in St. Mark's Square with violinists. My daughter had it played at her wedding. Um, but people still carry that with them and it's just a, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful gift. John Denver's rise to stardom coincided with a bleak time in American life. With the Watergate scandal, gasoline shortages, and the end of the Vietnam War, his simple songs of love and nature struck a chord across war-weary America. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy. John's songs offered a refreshing affirmation of kindness in contrast to the steady stream of opposition and protest music that was emptying out of America's radios and turntables. But not everyone liked John Denver. In the rock music press, he was widely loathed. Here's G. Brown from the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. The last interview I conducted with John was in the early 90s, and we got around to the topic of his detractors. Uh, he was called the Mickey Mouse of rock, the Ronald Reagan of pop. What he was angry about was what it meant regarding his fans, the people that had seen a birth of a child to his music or had gotten married to one of his songs, that they were being disparaged. Uh, that angered him. That's what got under his skin. John would sing to 18,000 people and the music critics would just talk about how, how pap his music was and everything. And the last tagline was, but the 18,000 people seemed to enjoy it. There was also those who had a love-hate relationship with John's music. Here's a story from John's friend, Ron Lemire. We're in Lake Powell. We have this... Uh houseboat and we found this beautiful little circular uh, bay you know with, with with about 80 foot cliffs all the way around it like a real natural amphitheater right when the sun went down another boat came in 
and just parked like about 20 yards away from us. They didn't know who we were. So that night, uh, John wanted to take his guitar and go in the middle of this little bay and sing. And here his voices reflect back to the with the with the with the rock. And so he's in the middle of the uh, of his songs and he's singing. He's got these. He's got like three echoes feeding back, and he's you know just having this great time just working with his vocals and some of the songs that he's working on. And then all of a sudden, the, the other people in the boat turn the radio up real high just to drown us out a little. And we, and we just started laughing. There was nothing else you could do. It's like, here we are at a concert tour. Thousands of people pay good money to see him. And here he is, a free concert, and they, and they numb him out, right? So we go back and, you know, bunk in for the night, and then the next morning as we're getting out there, John's in the stern, you know, pulling things, you know, as I'm driving the boat out, and, the, and those people are out on the deck, and they see John, and go, oh, it's John Denver! <laughs> John just, it just like goes off into the sunset. John Denver was a hugely popular entertainer. His concerts often had the reverence of a religious gathering. He put together a stellar band many of whom played for Elvis, including guitar legend James Burton. He could put the people in the palm of his hand. It, it was just like a one-on-one, -on -one, you know. It was a, the people were right there with him. Now you hear that? That's not Rocky Mountain High. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, my friend, Mr. Frank Scott. I've got you under my skin. I remember the first time they worked together, we did Harris in Lake Tahoe. And when we put the show on sale, the phone lines in the Western United States went down from the reservations. That's how big it was. You know, Frank, I was just thinking, about the time that song was first heard, so was I. <laughs> Sometime during his tenure with the trio, I remember him saying that it was one of his ambitions in life to become as much of a household name as Frank Sinatra. The payoff came years later when I found myself in Los Angeles driving up Sunset Boulevard and looking up and seeing a humongous poster of the two of them with their arms crossed standing back to back with each other. And I thought to myself, my golly, he made it. But I get a kick, you give me a boot, I get a kick out of you, out of you. John was now a superstar. He had his own Lear jet and got his dad to fly it for him. And back home in Aspen, John's own family started to grow, and he and Annie adopted two small children. Here's Annie. Zach was the first, and he was this little brown, beautiful little boy. And then Anna Kate was the second. And John was just thrilled and over the moon that this was happening too, because we'd have a boy and a girl. Stars he makes. And when we come back, the final segment 
of our celebration of the life, the music of John Denver. His story, his family's story, the story of his career here on Our American Stories. In the dawn, the subway's coming. In the dawn, I hear him humming. Some old song he wrote of love in Boulder Canyon. Guess he'd rather be in Colorado. When I was just a wee little boy Full of health and joy One Christmas morn and I received A marvelous little toy A wonder to behold it was With many colors bright And the first time I laid eyes on it It became my heart's delight It went zip when it moved Bop when it stopped Brrr when it stood still I never knew just what it was And I guess I never will This is Our American Stories, and now we return to the final segment of the life of John Denver. John also utilized his talents in Hollywood. His first feature film was Oh God. John played Jerry Landers, an assistant manager in a supermarket who receives a visit from God, played by George Burns. Reluctant to believe the old man is really God, Jerry needs proof. Here's the automobile scene with John Denver and George Burns. I see you know a lot of things, and, and, and you've been making a lot of things happen, but, but none of it seems... Godlike? Yeah, godlike. And what to you would be godlike? Uh, change the weather. Ah, special effects, huh? What would you like, a little, a little earthquake, uh, a small hurricane? Well, no, no, I, I wouldn't want anybody hurt. I was just thinking maybe, uh, what about a little rain? A little rain? Yeah. Uh, a small shower. One small shower, you got it. Hey. Hey, it's raining. You made it rain. You didn't even bat an eye. You, you didn't have to lift a finger. Rain's not that hard. It's unbelievable. Would you like it to rain a little harder? No, no, this is fine. How about bigger drops? No, this is fine, fine. Would you care for a little snow? This is fantastic! Thank you. It's just like Noah's Ark. Same thing, without the smell. The film was well received by critics and was regarded by many as one of the best films of 1977, including Gene Siskel, who placed it on his top ten list for the year. Roger Ebert praised the casting of Burns in Denver and noted that, Oh God struck the right tone by avoiding both pious religious platitudes and cheap shots about faith. Despite his huge success, John Denver had always been prone to insecurity and self-doubt. From the early 70s, he had been involved in New Age therapies, including the controversial self-awareness program, EST, or EST. Here again is John's manager, Jerry Weintraub. I think he had a difficult time with success. I think that was very hard for him because I don't think he knew how good he was. Many, many artists don't realize how good they are, and that's when the darkness comes out. I don't think he ever accepted 
the fact that he was as good as he was, because the critics always were a problem for him. John was one of the first celebrities to use his fame to promote conservation. He formed a firm friendship with legendary French naval officer and underwater explorer, Jacques Cousteau. And uh, I met Captain Cousteau and, uh, and all of the members of uh, the Calypso uh, down in Belize in, uh, in Central America. And I had these words in my head, I, Calypso, the places you've been to, the, the things that you've shown us, the stories you tell. And anyway, the chorus to the song was there in almost the time it takes to say it. During the remaining time that I spent aboard the Calypso, I tried to finish this song. Uh, to be able to sing it for Captain Cousteau and his crew. And for some reason, I was unable to, uh, to in- get anywhere close to what I was hoping to say behind that wonderful chorus. And uh, I couldn't finish this song. I just could not find it. One day, I, I gave up after spending sleepless nights and, and literally, <laughs> at least it felt like sweating blood trying to finish this song. And I went skiing across the valley at Snowmass, made a couple of runs, and all of a sudden there was inc- this incredible tension to get back home and, and, and to work on the song. And so I skied down to my car. It takes about 20, 25 minutes to drive from Snowmass back here to the house. And in that time, the whole rest of the song was there for me. It just came almost out of nowhere. I came to the house, I walked upstairs in the studio, picked up my guitar, and I had the song. One of the best songs I think that I've ever written, one that I still use to to close my concerts today, Calypso. To sail on a dream on a crystal clear ocean To ride on the crest of a wild raging storm To work in the service of life and the living In search of the answers to questions unknown To be part of the movement Part of the growing, part of beginning to understand. I could so the places you've been to, the things that you've shown us, the stories you tell. I could so I sing to your spirit, the men who have served you so long and so well. Here's Jacques' son, Jean Michael Cousteau. Typical of John and his generosity, ultimately gave the revenue of that particular song to the not-for-profit company of my father. And uh, I remember collecting big checks. Sometimes I feel like a sad song. By the early 1980s, John's status as a pop star was fading. Although his albums were still popular, He hadn't had a single hit since Calypso in 1975. His personal life was also in turmoil. His father died in March 1982, and only three months later, on their 15th wedding anniversary, Annie asked him for a divorce. By the mid-1980s, John's star had fallen. When the charity record We Are the World was produced in 1985, John wasn't even invited to participate. He also broke up with his long-term manager, Jerry Weintraub. In 1986, Denver was dropped by RCA, the company for whom he recorded 14 gold and 8 platinum albums in the U.S. alone 
and sold over 100 million records. In the 1990s, his appearances in the media were more for drunk driving offenses than for his music. But John Denver had a loyal fan base, and he still played sellout shows all over the world. In 1996, John was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, but there was to be no comeback for John Denver. Since learning to fly with his father, he had become a keen pilot, owning a number of high-performance acrobatic planes and flying Air Force F-15 combat jets. On October 12, 1997, he had taken delivery of an experimental kit plane and test flew it at a low level over Monterey Bay in Northern California when the plane crashed into the sea. The accident report concluded that the plane had run out of fuel. John was killed instantly. I've been lately thinking about my lifetime All the things I've done, how it's been And I can't help believing in my own mind I know I'm gonna hate to see it end Seen a lot of sunshine, slept out in the rain. Spent a night or two all on my own. And I've known my lady's pleasure. He represented America at its best and healthiest. He's a wonderful artist and a wonderful writer. And I think his songs will be sung for hundreds of years. They're that good. To say it now, it's been a good life all in all. It's really fine to have a chance to hang around. Here's a story from John's longtime friend, Tom Crum. I'll tell you a little story that, that, that has always meant a lot to me. And this happened with uh, his son, Zach. When he was eight or nine years old, he's on the same little squirt hockey team that my son was on. And they went all the way to the state championships. So there we are in this arena, if you will, this big arena in Colorado Springs. And there's only 65 people in the place, right? You can, it's just parents, but the parents are so pumped. The game's about to start. John doesn't know what he's going to do, but I know he needs to contribute. He stands up impromptu, turns his face to the audience, and sings the national anthem. You know, no music accompaniment, nothing, just did it for those 60 people. We all stood up, saluted the flag, put our hands on our heart. It was incredibly moving. We won that game, went to a pizza restaurant that night. He bought everybody, the parents, all the kids dinner. He was so excited. Again, always wanting to contribute, however. And then he bought everybody else in the restaurant dinner. Here again is John's producer, Milt Oaken. The arc of his career was like that of an eagle taking flight. People have said that what Sinatra was to the 1940s, Elvis to the 1950s, the Beatles to the 60s, John Denver was to the 1970s. His music was powerful and his message was so positive and compassionate. It's refreshing to hear it again today. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Oh, I'm 
John Denver's story, This Day in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and every month we tell the stories of lives lost through miscarriage, stillborn birth, and sudden infant death syndrome. And we do that because in 1988, President Ronald Reagan declared October Infant Loss Month. And a lot lot of people know about that, but so many people experience this. So many families across this country. And it's one of those things I think more people need to talk about. And we've had personal experience here on the show with miscarriage and stillborn birth. Me personally, my wife's best friend in Baltimore, Pam, she had one miscarriage and oh my goodness, the grief. And then she went back, she and her husband committed to having another child and she got pregnant. She was so happy, but she was so scared. And then came the news, she lost another. And I'd never seen that kind of grief in my life. And so we bring you these stories, and we want to hear yours, by the way. OurAmericanNetwork.org. Write to us. We'll help you record your story. And don't worry. We're not afraid to hear you cry. We're not afraid of the grief. And share it with others. It'll help. Today's story comes from Megan Beyer, who experienced a stillborn birth And in spite of the haze of her suffering, she made the effort to write her husband a tribute, a tribute of gratitude. She graciously recorded it for us. Together we held our son who was stillborn in the middle of the night. You helplessly watched your daughter take her last breath on my warm, bare chest. You were always calm, collected, and stoic, although grieving in your own man way. As my world fell apart, somehow you did not. I'm in awe of that each and every single day. Difficult decisions and logistics were all part of your job. You calmly stepped out for phone calls. You spoke to the nurses and birth registrar. You made the arrangements with the funeral home and met with them before I did, arranged the cremations, and obtained death certificates when insurance needed it. You worked out all the payments with whomever needed paid. Not one complaint ever crossed your lips through all those long, dark days. As my body healed and my heart ached from the traumatic deliveries, you wrapped your arms around me and held my soul so tightly. 
We cried together many lonely nights as we grieved the path we envisioned. I think back in awe of the strength you displayed, your determinations and wise decisions. You took off work from my follow-up appointments, made me dinner and listened to all my fears. When medical bills arrived, you made sure they stayed out of sight, even when it didn't prevent any tears. After long hours at work, you would come home to me, a sad and broken woman. You supported me when I quit nursing and went back to waiting tables. You encouraged me to go back to school and find myself again. You knew when to listen and when to challenge my reckless and crazy grit. You've been critical to my success, frequently squashing seeds of doubt, never wavering in your love and commitment to our pipe dream of one day having a family. Each year, when the dates roll by and you're the only one to notice, you genuinely hug me, give me a kiss, and sometimes flowers are in order. Late at night, sometimes when my tears hit your chest, you sigh a deep, sad breath before you kiss me goodnight. Someday we will tell the true story to our girls, all of the sad and intimate details, the truth about our family story, not the Facebook fairy tales. I envision they will shed a tear for the children that came before, maybe grateful for the lessons we learned or the ones we had in store. Occasionally, gratefulness flows over me with the sight of our stunning girls. And I'm almost thankful for our losses. These girls have changed our world. Life would be so different without them and the visceral joy they bring. Yet still, a silent storm of sorrow leaves us constantly grieving. Nowadays, our life keeps us busy. Love and laughter heals most of the pain. But the ache and sorrow never really leaves. It just simply hides away. Thank you for your endless dedication to us and our tiny dream. The burden feels so heavy, but you're so inspiring. You've gracefully carried more pain than most will ever know. Thank you. It's a gesture that I owe. Always know that I am here for you, and I see the true man you are. You are my husband, lover, and very best friend. Till death do us part. And thank you for that, Megan. And in the end, you know, we were talking about this, and there are two kind of husbands, a husband who gets a letter like that and a husband who doesn't. And we love bringing you these stories, hopefully to inspire you to become that man. And also that woman, because listen to the grace of Megan and the beauty of her writing and what we can all come over and come through and get past with love. And with patience. This is our American stories. Megan's story, Infant Loss Month. We do this well because we have to, and because somebody has to. And again, please share your stories with us. Men too, you suffer this loss. It's not just the woman. Ouramericannetwork.org will help you record the story.
This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a former veteran of the National Hockey League, Sean Pronger. Sean's nine-year voyage and the stories behind it are chronicled in his well-received memoir entitled Journeyman, the many triumphs and even more numerous defeats of a guy who's seen just about everything in the game of hockey. An excerpt from Sean's book was posted by the sports website Deadspin, and it quickly went viral. It's titled, I Was Wayne Gretzky's Hungover Linemate, An NHL Journeyman Picks the Wrong Night to Drink. Let's take a listen to Sean's story. To the side of the net, Taylor to Gretzky, he scores! Wayne Gretzky has tied it and broken 40 house records. What a time with Gretzky trailing. Gretzky looking, Gary Curry, McSorley to Gretzky! Say I was a Wayne Gretzky fan as a child would be like saying that my brother Chris has a small gap in his teeth. The Oilers were my team, and Wayne was my idol. It's a great game. I didn't do it to make the paper or get on TV. Uh, that wasn't really even sort of the mindset. We just played for fun. When Chris and I played hockey in the basement, I was always Gretzky, and he was always Mike Bossy. Mike Bossy put it in the net in that one. Two of the most creative offensive forwards of all time. These guys were our idols. My brother Chris turned into a Norris Trophy winning defenseman in the NHL. Chris Pronger. Imposing. Feared. And dominant. He won the MVP of the NHL. Not too many D have done that. You know, Bobby Orr. He didn't care about anything except for winning. And that's who you want on your team. And I, well, that's what this story is about. We grew up in Dryden, a small mill town in northwestern Ontario, 400 kilometers east of Winnipeg. At that time, the Jets were still in Winnipeg, and they were in the classic Smythe division. That meant the Edmonton Oilers came to town often to torture the Jets and their fans. One year, we made the journey to the peg, and by chance, or perhaps by stalking, the Prongers were staying in the same hotel as the Oilers. I can still remember sitting in the lobby with Chris, watching the Oilers walk through on their way to breakfast. Kevin Lowe walked by and Chris casually said, Hey Kev, as if they were old buddies. Who knew years later they would be buddies? I didn't see Gretzky go through the lobby, so I went over to the restaurant to have a look. And wouldn't you know it, my idol was in fact there. I can still remember Wayne was eating Eggs Benny that day. As I was spying on him, an old man came up to me and said, Hey kid, can you go get Wayne's autograph for my son? Now understand, I didn't want to ask because the great one was eating. On the other hand, of course I asked. If I'd had any brains in my head, I would have gotten one for myself as well. No one ever said I was a genius. Fast forward about 20 years, and wouldn't you know it? I got traded to a New York Rangers team that included none other than the great one. I felt like I was a fantasy camper. Start spreading the news. Looking back, I see that may be one of the reasons my career never took off the way I thought it would. I never felt like I belonged, 
because I was always looking through young Sean's eyes at my great teammates. New York, New York. From November 1998 to February 1999, I was a ranger and a teammate of Wayne Gretzky. Any chance I got to hang out with him, I did. Although most of the time he had no idea we were hanging out. As a fringe player, you have to keep a positive attitude. No one wants to see a fifth liner complain about ice time. So one night I decided to go blow off a little steam, see what the Big Apple had to offer. The fact that a practice was scheduled for the next day did not weigh into my decision making one bit. My friend Herbie, my wife, and I found a nice little tavern for a bite and a few carbonated wheat sodas. Good game! Thank God there is still a sport for middle-sized white boys. One led to another, which of course led to another four, and the next thing we knew, my wife and I were strolling home at 4.30 a.m. I think I got to bed around 5 a.m., which was great, because I had to get up at 7 a.m. to drive to the practice rink. I got a solid two hours sleep before the buzzer woke me from my coma. To be honest, I wasn't too worried because I had been practicing on defense the day before. Not a great sign for a forward. I was literally a practice fill-in. Anyway, as I walked through the dressing room, I got the sense that something wasn't right. Wait a second. That's the wrong colored jersey hanging in my stall. Why is it red? You see, in New York, I was a yellow jersey. The scrub line color. Red, on the other hand, was for Gretzky. Adam Graves, and Kevin Stevens. I decided someone must be messing with me. I scanned the room to see who was trying to have some fun. Not a person in the room. I grabbed the red jersey and headed into equipment manager Mike Vogelin's office. Folks, you gave me the wrong jersey. No, I didn't, he barked back. You're wearing red today, my friend. Kevin has the flu. Mouth agape, I suddenly realized... I'm playing on Gretzky's line today. A million thoughts and questions rushed through my head. What have I done? Why did I stay out so late? Why don't they close the bars earlier? Where's my camera? How hard would young Sean punch me in the face right now? And he'd be right to do so. My first chance to play with the great one, and I had a bad case of the brown bottle flu. I jumped in the shower and drenched myself in freezing cold water. Time to wake up and get ready to go. Now I know what you're thinking. Slow down, Chris's brother. It's not like you're playing the Islanders tonight. This is practice, after all. I know. But you have to understand that for us fifth-liners, practice is the game. And when you're playing with Gretzky, it's the all-star game. As the skate loomed closer, I wondered if I should have a talk with Gretz. Just a little chat between first-liners to let him know what transpired a few hours earlier. Or maybe I should just suck up to him and lie about my state. I opted to come clean. Gretz, I'm hungover. Maybe even a little drunk still. Can you keep the puck away from me today? I could not believe I was saying this even as the words were coming out of my mouth. Was I really telling the greatest player in the history of the game, not to mention the finest passer ever, to keep the puck away from me? I was, and the great one was great about it. No problem, Pronks. I've been there myself. Wait, 
Did he just call me Prongs? He knows my name? Somehow that one line from Wayne put my mind at ease. Wayne knew my situation, and he had my back. What a guy. I was calm as I got dressed. As I did, I couldn't help but dream that Wayne and I would have some undeniable chemistry together which would force Coach to do the right thing and keep me on the top unit. We'd become as tight as two coats of paint. Right. I could barely contain my grin as we began to wheel around the ice before the drill started. There was a strut in my step and not the Guinness legs I'd expected to be carting around. I had completely shut out the fact that the coaches likely didn't want to mess up the other lines by moving someone up to play on the red line. But as the drills began, every single pass Gretz made was to yours truly. And I'm not talking about those beautiful saucer passes you see in his video, Hockey My Way. I'm talking about wobbly hand grenades that would blow up as soon as they hit my stick. And by the way, I was playing the off wing. That's right. I had to try to catch those bouncing Bettys on my backhand. Thinking the whole episode was my fault, I formulated an apology as I headed back to the line. Sorry, Wayne, was all I could come up with. He said, Prongs, don't worry about it. I'll try to give you better passes from now on. And he delivered the line with a wink. Turns out Wayne thought it would be fun to mess with me from the get-go. How awesome is that? The greatest player ever to lace them up went out of his way to thoroughly embarrass a hungover grinder. And you know what? That made me feel more included than if he had played it straight. And a great story about leadership. And by the way, the character of Wayne Gretzky. And we love getting surprised. A lot of guys would have gotten in the grill of a grinder. And he didn't. He had fun with them. And picked him up, cheered him up, and on to the next thing. And we love to talk about what makes people great. And my goodness, an insight into the greatest of all time. One of the greatest athletes of the 20th century, Wayne Gretzky. This is Our American Stories. Yeah, he's a Canadian, but he lives in America now, Wayne. And what a great American story. More after these messages. American stories and periodically we love to just hear from really smart people they're not famous you've never heard of them before but they can talk and they can talk about anything we all had that teacher that the guy could have taught or gal could have taught anything and you would have taken it and it would have been interesting and a while back we had on Stephen Goldberg to talk about something or another we don't remember what but he went on this tear 
And it la- and it went on and on. And usually you're the host. You want to interrupt. You want to say something. But he just kept going. Yeah, you asked him one question, and 12 minutes later, the segment was over, and he hadn't even taken a breath yet. Not a he breath. He just talked. But it wasn't boring. No. Not only wasn't it boring, we were wondering... How does he keep making it more interesting? And why do we want to interrupt? And darn, I can't believe we have to go to a commercial. And so we're calling this segment Musings. And right now it's with Stephen Goldberg, but it could be with anybody. And by the way, Stephen Goldberg, now retired, was chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York for 20 years. His books include Fads and Fallacies in the Social Sciences, When Wishes Replace Thought, and the inevitability of patriarchy, which I think is what we originally had him on for, some musings about that. And his work has appeared everywhere. Psychiatry, Yale Review, National Review, Saturday Review, every review. Let's take a listen to Stephen Goldberg's musings. So it's 1956, and I'm 14 years old. I'm on this bicycle trip from Calgary, Canada, to Yellowstone Park, Wyoming. There are 12 guys and a leader, an ex-Marine named Grockdorf. Now, I'm pretty good at bike riding, which is a good thing, because it's a lot of miles from Calgary to Yellowstone. But what I'm not good at, and what I never expected to do, was having to ride a horse. That we would stop at a ranch, a real ranch, not what you call a uh, dude ranch. And uh, we would be required to ride a horse. A horse! I know what you're thinking. What's a Jewish kid from New York doing riding a horse? Who ever heard of such a thing? The time comes when they're giving out the horses. In front of me is a guy, Jimmy, who is more than a bit of a wise guy. And he says to the cowboy who's giving the horses out, he'd like a frisky steed. (laughs) Now, cowboys don't tend to show a lot of emotion on their faces, but they can't keep their feelings out of their eyes. And I could see the eyes of this cowboy, and he was thinking, oh, he wants a frisky steed, does he? Bring out Dr. Death. (laughs) So now it's my turn to be given a horse. Uh, Naturally, I request an old lady horse, preferably one with advanced arthritis. I couldn't have been more pleased. They bring me this spinster horse named Lucky. The cowboy realized I needed all the help I could get. Lucky must have been 80 years old, 80 years in people years, not horse years. We start riding, and it soon becomes clear that my horse was a sort of reverse camel. Where a camel's back goes up in the air, my horse's tummy went down and rubbed against the ground. My legs were like, you know, the things on children's bikes. I think they're called training wheels. Every step Lucky took, my heels dug into the ground. So the many-hour ride went okay. Thank goodness we didn't gallop. And we settled down at night and got into our sleeping bags for a well-deserved night's rest. But I noticed something. Grockdorf, the leader, just let the horses hang out. Now, I had seen enough Western movies to know that when a cowboy goes into a bar for a mug of sarsaparilla, um, he uh, ties his horse to a hitching post. That was, I correctly assume, to keep the horse from running away. I guess Grockdorf never heard of this um, and never saw the movies. So come morning, there was not a horse to be seen. 
Three hours later, two very angry-looking cowboys rode uh, within view, leading a pack of 13 horses. It was incidentally at this time that I first thought of a question that I have not found an answer for in the 60 years that have passed since. Perhaps that's because it might uh, take a rancher to answer the question. And as your listeners probably know, we don't have many ranches in New York City. I mean, the buildings are about 20 feet apart. What kind of ranch could you have? Maybe one big enough for a single cow. Anyway, perhaps one of your listeners could answer the question, and, and here it is. This is the question. Say there are two cowboys out on a ranch, like the ones that I've heard of they have in Texas. In the far, far distance, there is a horse. It's almost out of sight for the cowboys, uh, so far away that they can tell it's a horse, but not whether it's a gentleman horse or a lady horse. One of the cowboys turns to the other and says, hey, look over there, there's a horse. No problem, because the cowboy doesn't have to know the sex of the horse. The word horse covers both sexes. It's just a horse. Now, here's where things get tricky. Let's say a cow or a bull is in the distance instead of a horse. The cowboys can tell it's a cow, not a horse. The lower center of gravity is observable, um, even at the great distance. But horns and udders are much too small to be seen at that distance. One cowboy turns to the other and says, Hey, look over there. There's a... What? What is the cow-bull sexless equivalent of a horse? I wrote to the Department of Agriculture asking my question. The department wrote back uh, in a three-page, tightly typed letter giving me an entire taxonomy of the cow-bull. I didn't know whether to applaud the department for its uh, fine work or write a letter of criticism for their wasting our tax money, expending time and energy on a dumb question like mine. Anyway, the Department of Agriculture gave me an answer. You call the uh, sex-free word for uh, cow-bull, uh, equivalent to horse-for-horse, horse, a bostaurus. Bostaurus. <laughs> well, maybe. It's really hard to believe that a cowboy would turn to his partner and say, hey, look over there, there's a Bostaurus. <laughs> See, when I was a kid, I saw movies with great cowboys. Your listeners mostly have probably never heard of because they're too young. But these were great. There was Bob Steele, Lash LaRue, Whip Wilson. I mean, these guys were tough. There were no singing cowboys, if you get my drift. Bob, Lash, and Whip wouldn't be called dead saying Boss Taurus. So what would they say? I found one Google source that said there's no sexless word for cow or bull. There's no equivalent to the word horse. But people have been ranching for 5,000 years, and it's, hard, it's difficult to believe that they haven't found a need for such a word. So what could the cowboys say? Well, perhaps they could say that cow means both male and female, as we have, at least traditionally, used man not just for males, but male and female. But I've never heard of this and doubt that the cowboys had either. So, what is the sexless word for the cow bull, the equivalent of the word horse? 
60 years later, and I still don't know. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, and thank you, Stephen Goldberg. <laughs> Bustorus. Wow. Bustorus. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That's Stephen Goldberg. That's our musing segment. And we just love hearing from really great storytellers. And it does not get better than that. Stephen Goldberg, retired chairman of the Department of Sociology at City College, City University of New York. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. That's Glenn Campbell's Try a Little Kindness, which means it's time for our Generous Living segment, sponsored by Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity, protecting philanthropic freedoms, and assisting givers in achieving their goals. And you can learn more about their work at philanthropyroundtable.org. In Philanthropy, the magazine, I read about a remarkable Chicagoan, given that our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, is from Chicago. We asked him to chase down this story. I see their faces, looking their innocent eyes. They're just children from the outside. I'm working hard. I tell myself they'll be fine. They're independent, but on the inside, oh, I can hear them saying. portrayed him in the movie Hardball. Oh my God, Dickie. I was down 11 grand before I made this play. He misportrayed him as a drunken gambler who didn't want to coach inner-city kids in a Chicago Little League. I get paid under the table to coach that team. And I only do that because I'm in a big hole with two bookies who are looking to kill me. But he wasn't a drunk what? or a gambler or forced to be there. Actually, he was a drunk, just not at that point in his life. By this time, he had already met a man who would change his life forever. The man who inspired him to actually found the Inner City Little League. A man named Jesus Christ. A story they somehow missed in the movie Hardball. But without that story, without that man, there would be no West Side Little League. There'd be no story for Hardball to tell. There'd be no Hardball. Worse to him, they misportrayed all those kids who we made his own, portraying them like this. All right, let me break it down to you right quick. Andre say he catch any hop of ball, anybody can throw. Coffee say that's bullshit. You a buster. Andre say roll up. Coffee say I give you all my gun if you catch this ball. He threw the ball. Andre caught it. Andre say pay me my money. Coffee say you do a cheating. 
No way. Coffee said you go modify. Okay, I got it. Thanks. Cursing that he said they never used, reinforcing the worst racial stereotypes. He pointed out, you never see the white kids in Bad News Bears. If you wiped your nose once in a while, people wouldn't give you so much crud all the time. Or Mighty Ducks. You don't even know what to do with it, wuss breath. Using this language. This man's name is Bob Muzikowski. And this is his real story. To lead them with strong hands To stand up when they abuse at a young age led to drug abuse and in college it all spun out of control when bob would play rugby he'd hold the cup on the sidelines with cocaine in it one of the games he asked a friend hey that guy who just got thrown out of the game is he really a priest and he was an anglican priest named pastor weber that became more than a teammate he became a friend a friend who tried to help him but bob didn't want to think too deeply about his life or about god saying I'd always thought doing so might spoil my fun by making me feel bad. Then rock bottom came. A drinking binge cost him his job and caused him to miss Christmas with his family. And a bar fight led him to prison. Pastor Weber bailed him out, but at home and drunk and high, Bob fell and tore open a wound from the brawl, landing himself in prison. Pastor Weber shows up once again, this time holding Bob's hand in prayer. Lightning didn't flash, Bob later said, but it was suddenly as if I had new eyes. New eyes that opened wider over the next few years, leading Bob and his wife Tina to move to Chicago. And just not anywhere in Chicago, into the neighborhood of one of the most notorious public housing projects in all of America, Cabrini Green. Here's a CBS report on the neighborhood from 1989, about the same time they moved there. Picture a no-man's land with broken windows, dark abandoned buildings, no law and order. There are carefully demarcated areas controlled by rival bands of armed militia fighting over the rubble. Nearly every night there's sniper fire. It sounds like Beirut, but in fact it's America. What's it like here? What's the neighborhood like? Like a bad neighborhood. So why would the Muzikowskis move there? They move away from the city because the crime, the better schools, uh, I want a nice big backyard. And if you think about that, Jesus isn't even that picture, you know. Why do all Christians who make X amount of dollars live together with other Christians who make X amount of dollars? Why aren't we mixing with people of other races and of other uh, income strata? We feel very strongly, where would Jesus live? And if you look in the Bible, Jesus was in the cities. Peter, Paul, all of them, they're in the cities. where it's happening. <laughs> we have friends who won't visit us down here. Is my car safe out here? Or No, just me and my kids are safe. You, know, you guys are. You're going to get back and go to the suburbs. For Bob and Tina, it's about going all in on their beliefs. Tina's not from this background. She just really must really believe the scripture. Do not fear is in the Bible 366 times, one time for each day of the year. And, you know, God purposed to do that. It's all about you. On his morning job, Bob noticed an empty lot and kept noticing it until it hit him. It could be a baseball field. It could even be a Little League. The very Little League hardball would later give attention to. What do you do around here for fun? Play baseball with you. 
When the response proved too much to handle, Bob turned to his contacts in his growing insurance brokerage business. He made it clear to them he didn't just want their money. $700 for a team's uniforms, bats, and gloves. He wanted their time, too. And he wasn't going to take their money unless they coached in his Little League. Bob said, good men, married men, need to be there and set the examples. We have men that succeeded that I coached 13 years ago who are now back married with kids. These are the models. Uh, the program has grown. We're the biggest inner city little league in the country. Uh, so it's much more holistic. Baseball's just the carrot um, to attract kids. You need to do five little things to have a neighbor. You need Boy Scouts. You need Little League. You need uh, Bible study. You need the churches being active. And instead, everyone's thrown their hands up and gotten stun gun and thinking, this problem is too large for us. Let's go play 18 holes and write somebody a check and not get personally involved. Bob says that if the boys are playing ball with each other when they're 11, it's hard for them to shoot each other at 16. That doesn't mean it's been all smiles for them. I had one of my boys uh, that I coached for years. uh, He used to come to practice on his bike. He had no... He rode on the rims, and so uh, one of the doctors that coaches with us, we bought him uh, for his birthday. We got him new white wall tires and uh, new handlebars and really snazzed his bike up. And I got a call from his grandmother a few weeks later um, to go. Uh, I had to go get Brian in the, uh, at the morgue, go ID him. And I had shot him for his bike that we had brought him. So if you think we're going to win all the time, uh, Mother Teresa said we're called to serve, not succeed. We're not going to win all these battles. And yet the Muzikowskis kept going into battle. They thought, the Little League is a great first step, but we don't just want to apply bandages to open wounds. We want kids to have a more transforming experience that will change their whole future. Bob and Tina dreamed of starting a school where they could have hope for a better future. Their name for it? Chicago Hope Academy. A dream that would come true thanks to the generosity of volunteers and donors. The Muzikowskis themselves sold one half of their brokerage business to help finance it. And more importantly, invested their own kids into it. I have seven children. Four of them are here at Hope. One of them graduated. If you want to fix the uh, low-income urban schools, people with educations and money need to just put their own kids in the school with those kids. At first, many didn't welcome the school, but it's been more worthwhile. When he started the school, there were death threats. They threw bottles through our front windows and burned our garbage cans. Some neighbors didn't appreciate that kids came from all over the city to attend Hope. Kids like William Mendez, who look up to Muzikowski as a provider. Me and my mom was going through her second divorce, and it's basically down to a point where I was living in the cars that weren't running and stuff, and Bob found out, unfortunately, he said, you know, there's no reason for you to do what you're doing. We've got rooms over here. The students came to me and said, you got to talk to Will about his hygiene. And I talked to Will about that, and the fact of the matter, he's been living in a car. He stayed a couple nights in my basement, and then we moved him in here. Muzikowski provides for lots of students. Cortez Smith, kind of an ornery kid. We've become very close now, probably talk to him every day. He was shot on the way home from school early this year. I turned around. I see a green car right past, and there was a lot of guys behind me. So they started shooting, shooting, shooting. The first bullet, first shot that went off, I got hit. I called Bob. He told me I could stay in a convent. So ever since then, I've just been staying here. Everything's been cool. All that you've heard flows from this singular purpose of Bob's. So my purpose is to hopefully honor God and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant someday. I'm not that deep. You know? 
Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Great work on that, Alex, and yeah, not that deep. The urgency of life on the west side of Chicago motivated Bob and Tina to join the Philanthropy Roundtable, the nation's leader in fostering excellence and generosity. Bob remarked, I'm looking for like-minded partners for advice and help. He continued, I hope to inspire people at the roundtable to give more and give with more intensity. And of course, he's hoping more people join the roundtable and more people give. And not just with their money, but with their time, with their hearts and their souls. Living generously. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. More after this. 